Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I have Dave Colley, the host of The Cold Podcast, which was produced by KSL, on this week. This is a continuation of last week's podcast. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, please go back, listen to that one first, and then join us here today so you'll be caught up to speed. Welcome back, Dave. Thanks so much, Anne. I really appreciate it. All right. So we've talked about the psychological abuse that Susan endured. We've talked about how she didn't recognize it. I want to talk about Josh's behavior after the murder, which I think is really interesting. It's similar to many abusers after a divorce, actually. They blame their situation on their victim. They continue to lie and hide and manipulate people. And in Josh's case, he had this huge crime and all these people looking at him and reporters trying to investigate. In my case, there's been nothing. Nobody's been trying to investigate or find the truth or anything. And so he's still an attorney and he's still doing his job and he's still lying about me and saying stuff that's not true. So, for example, his current congregation thinks that he's this amazing saint and that his crazy ex-wife has done him wrong and they feel so bad that he's this victim. So even in this case with Josh Powell, where there's a murder and someone is missing and all these police are trying to find the cause and you've got all these reporters who are investigating and still Josh is walking around. He's got his kids. He's still like functioning sort of. I mean, he's not functioning super well, obviously, but he's still walking around. He's still free. Now he's got a lot of eyes on him. So his neighbors are probably looking at him weird. I'm sure his life was miserable. So even in his case, he wasn't immediately like struck by lightning or hit by a bus or put in jail. Even in cases of a crime, it's difficult to hold them accountable. Let's talk about the women who don't have a crime. Yeah. They're just psychologically and emotionally abused. There's no crime. Why do you think society is so bad at holding these guys accountable? I think in a legal sense, and especially in the United States here, we have this concept of innocent until proven guilty. And that is very important to remember when we're talking about someone being accused of something criminally. But a marriage is a civil contract. It's not criminal. So you are married to somebody who is abusing you and you seek a divorce. And through the divorce, say it doesn't go well, the person's not amicable, right? Because what divorce is ever amicable? But the mind games, the, the petty ways in which very manipulative men in particular can work that system to their advantage or to try to hurt or undercut their former spouse, it doesn't rise to that criminal level. And I think a lot of people in broader society don't want to feel like they are passing a judgment on somebody without proof or evidence. Mm -hmm. And the very nature of this kind of abuse that manipulation, that financial control, that emotional abuse, is that there is not a trail of evidence. And even if you were able to take it to a police officer or, you know, a prosecutor, they would say, well, what is the crime? There's nothing in criminal statute that this violates. So that person then is able to go back into society and say, well, look, I'm a good guy. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm the victim. And she was mad at me. And my ex yeah. says, and she kicked me out of the house for no reason. And then she wouldn't talk to me. Yeah. He doesn't say, because I sprained her fingers and I had a no contact order from the courts. He right. doesn't tell people that part. Right. We need to, in a cultural sense, in the broadest way possible, 
confront our own perceptions on abuse in relationships and start retraining ourselves about how we react to these kinds of situations. For me, telling the Susan Powell story resulted in more people than I can even tell you reaching out to share their own personal experiences. Even talking to you here, Anne, about your relationship, I think is in a similar vein. A lot of women are dealing with this right now and have not ever found somebody who they felt safe being very candid with about what they've gone through. And I think a lot of us hold these personal experiences close. We don't share them. There's shame that's attached to it. There's a fear of not being believed. What I personally learned was that when people are willing to share those stories with me, when women come forward and say, hey, your podcast sounded like my life, the most important thing I can do is express belief and empathy and say, I'm so very grateful that you're safe. I'm sorry you have gone through or are going through this horrible circumstance. I believe you. And that opens conversation. I strongly feel that that is the path forward in trying to address why abusive men in particular are able to just walk away kind of clean and say, well, hey, I did nothing wrong. You know, it didn't work out. Some marriages don't work out. That's why I created this community to be that safe place because other places they might go and say, well, he's using pornography and people might be like, so (laughs) they're like, well, uh, it hurts and we're not having sex. And if we do have sex, it's confusing. And then he's lying. And then I don't know what else he's doing because he's lying about this. And people are, oh, all guys use porn or why are you so worried about it? There's that. Or there's an alternative side to that, and that's if they go in and say he's using pornography, and someone immediately says, well, then you have to get divorced, Mm -hmm. right? And they're kind of like, well, wait, they're in this stage where they're trying to figure out, well, I'm not sure if I want to do that. So here, a betrayal trauma recovery, we have this safe space for saying we are all about safety, 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 and we will help you define and figure out what is going on. And we recommend that while you don't know what's going on, that you get to safety quickly. And then, then from a safe place, you can objectively observe and find out what's happening. I think it's really interesting that Susan, I might be wrong, so correct me here, but I get the impression that Susan didn't know about the pornography until the very end. Was there any indication that she knew about it early on? I doubt that she did. I mean... Uh, like I mentioned in our last conversation, you know, there, there is some speculation by some in law enforcement that maybe she discovered something and that was a catalyst. I'm under the impression that Susan had no clue Josh was viewing pornography. In this case, I think it's really interesting. I am always asking reporters, when you come across a crime or an abuse crime, will you please always report the pornography? We mm. always put it in there because otherwise, like if they say he was a murderer, right? But they also don't know there was all this abuse going on. Otherwise, the pornography isn't always reported. But I think another thing that's really interesting is let's say a divorce happens and they've been going through marriage counseling for 10, 20 years. And pornography was never discovered, but it was always a factor. Right. And that is serious abuse issue where a man has a complete and total separate life, a double life that they're living, that they are keeping secret from their wife on purpose. And then they get divorced and people will be like, well, they just didn't get along. And the truth never comes out that he was 
abusing her psychologically and living this double life the entire time. And the sad thing is a lot of times she might not know. So she might think, well, I'm just wasn't a good communicator or I wasn't attractive enough or I didn't make dinner, you know, or whatever. And I think it's so sad that there are so many women who are kind of blaming themselves when they don't really understand the full situation. And to the point about why do you not hear it reported a lot? If I can talk to that just for a moment. Yeah, that'd be great. It's a difficult spot because especially early on in reporting, a lot of times we're working from a limited amount of information. The Powell case is very unique in that in putting together the cold podcast, we had access to a lot of information that was not available to us when Susan first disappeared. Material that was gained through search warrants and subpoenas and things like that. So when I sat down to tell Susan's story, I was more informed than I think many of us were at the time that she disappeared about what was going on behind the scenes. Say somebody came forward and said, yeah, you know, Josh goes on the internet and he looks at pornography. That is legal. You actually have a First Amendment right. Arguably, you know, the courts have defined that pornography is speech. It's subject to some, obviously, restrictions in that we don't legally allow child porn. You need kind of a nexus that ties it together. And without all of the context of Josh's journals and Susan's journals and all the stuff with these recordings, it's very difficult to put that together in a way where you see the broader context. So I'm kind of grateful that with the rise of podcasting and some of this more long-form investigative, we're better able to make those associations clear than you will ever see on the 10 o'clock news. I think when you look at Josh as somebody who is leading a double life, to your other point, he very clearly was not ever going to allow Susan to see his true self. Josh was a narcissist. And I say that in the sense of a psychologist actually said, you have narcissistic personality disorder. He created a persona, the persona of Josh as a young man. And the older he grew, the more solidified that persona became. And the inner core, the true identity of Josh Powell was not something that because of that outer shell, anybody was ever going to touch, especially including his wife. And so, yes, he is never going to concede to her that he's viewing pornography, that he's taking all of these steps that in my opinion were preparatory for killing her and cashing in on her life insurance because that would reveal the deep insecurity in himself. The little version of Josh Powell that could be hurt because the exterior was all about he's the expert at everything. Nobody is smarter than me. My kids are the best kids and can do no wrong because they're extensions of me. It's a very interesting thing, I think, with men who are abusive in this way that they very similarly tend to show kind of some of these narcissistic traits where they have this secret life, they protect that secret life to the exclusion of everything else. And I think part of what creates this danger, right, is the idea that when you are exposed, when, say, a spouse discovers this, now this is going to collapse that entire world. Mm -hmm. And as a man who's exhibiting this kind of narcissism, when you face that reality of your world collapsing versus I'll just make this person who discovered it, who sees the real me go away. I think that's part of why we see violence and especially homicide come into play in those moments. 
Yeah, I think so too. So I discovered my husband's porn use 18 months after we had married in the temple and he had promised me over and over that he didn't use porn. And so he had been lying to me and manipulating me the whole time. I think it's really interesting that he went into recovery. And when I say that, I mean in quotes. He became like the model pornography addict in recovery. And we were actually speaking about his amazing recovery. And I didn't know that he was still lying and manipulating me. Mm -hmm. So near the end, I was like, this is a sham. You are a fake. You are not in recovery. You haven't been. And you're speaking to people as if you are. And that is when the violence escalated. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not speaking with you anymore. I quit my job. I was the PR director of a popular pornography addiction recovery practice. And so I quit my job and I was like, no, I am done. I am not going to be like, oh, you're in recovery. You're such a great guy. I'm done with that. And I think it's also interesting that in the pornography addiction recovery space, which you may or may not be very familiar with, when someone enters recovery, everything in that family becomes about him and his recovery. Let's make sure he's okay. Let's treat him like he has cancer. I believe that that's actually a continuation of the abuse. Hmm. I think at that time they should say, okay, she's a victim of abuse here. She's been a victim of abuse for 10 years when she didn't know about his pornography use. Now we know. Let's treat her like she has cancer and let's make sure she's safe. And then let's wait at a safe distance to see if he really actually is a safe person to be around. That's not what happens right now. When a couple goes in to clergy and says he's using pornography, they're like, oh, okay, well, wife, you support him. Yeah. Be supportive. And I'm like, what? No, no, no. That should never happen because you don't know what else is going on. Like get her to safety and she needs to be supported while he's held accountable. And I think that's super important. I'm trying to teach everybody that right now, but it's not getting very far because that's too scary. It's too extreme. It's too, no, no, no. He's not a bad guy. He just uses porn. And there's so many other behaviors that are happening here that it's really important to make sure she's safe before you do anything else. Because otherwise you'll get a man in fake recovery Mm. who that could feed into that narcissism, right? Mm -hmm. It just, then everything's around her. I mean, I can't tell you how many families, how many women are spending tons of time reading books about pornography addiction. How can I support him? How can I make sure I don't shame him? And, and, and on and on. And he's like, great. It's all about me. The relationship's all about me. Meanwhile, she can't live a life because the whole life is about him and his pornography addiction. They have to adjust everything to fit this new reality to make sure he's okay, which is coddling an abuser really is what's happening. And it's, as you can tell, really making me mad. <laughs> really making well, me mad. And, and so like Susan, right? With, with yeah. Susan and Josh, we see that when Susan is in therapy, Josh is unwilling to go. And Susan writes repeatedly that she hopes that if she goes and he sees that it improves her, that he will be then willing to go as well. I want to go back in time and sit down with Susan and say, Susan, you do not understand the way your husband's brain works because that is never going to happen. The only time he ever goes to therapy is when she confronts him with, I'm leaving. And Susan is the meal ticket. She is doing the childcare. She's doing the breadwinning. She's taking care of the house. If Susan leaves, Josh is going to have to work. And he's also going to have to explain why his wife left, right? So... He reluctantly goes along, does the minimum necessary in that situation to just keep her on the hook. The idea of be supportive of your husband, you're working together, he's going to see how it improves me. He's like, Josh has no interest in improving. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these men 
who are, again, psychologically abusing their spouses, who are violating that trust, they're not interested in self-improvement for self-improvement's sake. It is a form of triage. Yeah. With me, what happened was he was the star. He went to so many workshops and seminars and stuff for pornography addiction. And he had all the right answers and everybody was like, oh, you're amazing. But he wasn't going to actually improve himself. He was just going to get tons of praise and people thinking he was smart and really cool. So my ex actually loved therapy because the therapist thought he was great. Hmm. So it can take different forms. So when people say, well, he's going to therapy, so he's willing. Sometimes I'm like, but why is he going to therapy? Like, is it because he really genuinely wants to change? Can you see that? Is he humble? Is he honest? Is he accountable? Or is it because he loves when the therapist thinks he's amazing and he doesn't really want to change because he loves it. And that's what happened with me over and over and over. He was always like the star, the smart one. From your podcast, we can see why it was difficult for the law to stop Josh Powell, who was under investigation for murder, because they were trying to gather evidence and trying to get information. So what hope do victims like me and my community have of getting help when it's quote unquote, just emotional abuse? What advice would you give that community? What would you say to Susan before the murder? Let's say five years before. Susan dealt with a lot, I think, of self-doubt. She knew something was wrong in her marriage. And she took some steps to begin the process of extricating herself from Josh and protecting herself. And in my opinion, is no one clear answer as to why she stayed in that relationship. Because I hear that a lot, right? Why did she stay? which in my opinion is the wrong focus. The focus should be on why do we have an abusive man who's perpetrating on his wife. But for the sake of argument, if we take this question of why did Susan stay, a lot of people want to blame the church. People that maybe aren't from the community or even who are, who say, well, clearly she was deluded by her religion. You have other people who want to blame it on XYZ. Well, The truth is, I think in any of these situations, in any relationship like this, there are a lot of different influences. Susan feels some degree of fear because Josh has made, I think, some threats to her in probably some very subtle ways, right? She expresses a fear at one point of, hey, I'm riding my bike to work on 5600 West in West Valley City, this busy road, and how easy would it be for me to have an accident, air quotes, when her father-in-law is writing in his journal that Josh has mentioned, boy, he just sure wishes that Susan would get hit by a car. So I'm looking at that saying, yeah, he's probably told her as much, right? I wish he would just get hit by a truck. And she's thinking, oh my gosh, my husband wants me dead. So you have fear. Susan goes to the temple and she prays about it and she has a feeling that she needs to stay. So you have all of these contrary forces, emotions. What I would tell Susan is, A, trust your gut. Clearly, you were concerned enough to feel a fear, and then you basically talked yourself out of it. Second, you have more support than you realize. Susan had a network of friends and family who we see after she disappears catalyze and become this amazing force to advocate for her and for her story, and they're still doing that now 10 years later. That's to me amazing, and I don't think she recognized how strong her support network was. The other thing I would tell her is, Susan, if you leave, you're going to be okay. 
because living with somebody who year after year undercuts you and robs you of your positive self-image, who makes you feel like dirt, like you're unlovable, makes the idea of going out into the world by yourself with your two children and trying to have to make a go of it seem very daunting. I have the benefit of looking at Susan from outside of that relationship and seeing somebody who is incredibly hardworking, who is bright, who loves her boys, who has plenty of admirers, who has a lot of friends, who makes friends easily, right? And even for somebody who doesn't have all of those things, it's scary to leave and to take that step. But it's also not as scary as you probably think it is once you are on the other side. Like Susan would have been okay as long as she was safe from Josh. So going back to your point, get to safety, do whatever it takes to get to safety and then start rebuilding your life and you'll be okay. Yeah. And in this case, safety might be psychological, whatever that looks like for you. I'm not going to tell victims what that looks like, but then observe from a safe distance because divorce doesn't stop the abuse. Right. It doesn't. And people don't understand that either. They're kind of like, why didn't you get out? Why didn't you get divorced? And you're like, well, okay, I'm divorced, but he's still lying and manipulating and, you know, saying terrible things about me and abusing me. And every time I have to interact with him, which is minimal, mm-hmm. and he doesn't take accountability for what happened, to me, feels like another abuse episode. Because yeah. it's just another time he's not taking accountability. And until he can do that and clean up his mess and be accountable, It just feels like it's never ending. So I just have to protect myself. Knowing what safety actually means is really important. Knowing what boundaries really mean. Because even women who are divorced, like I hold a no contact boundary and all my communication with him goes through my father. But some people don't have that and they're still just being continually abused. They haven't blocked him on their phone, for example, and they're continually being like harassed or manipulated Mm. or even their post-divorce life is still somehow all about him, which is not cool, right? It's not okay. So to conclude here, at the end of the podcast, you gave a heartfelt plea to society to call out abuse in all of its forms. And for my community, that is a daily prayer that people will start recognizing this. So to conclude, what was your biggest takeaway that you learned about abuse that you didn't know before you studied the Susan Powell case? I could go on. This is a whole other episode. I have been and continue to be educated. I'm not afraid to share with you that as a child, I was a victim of some child sex abuse. And I think it's a whole other part of this story. Many of these similar kind of situations that we don't talk about candidly. So I feel like I came to my study of the Powell case with something of an understanding of what it is to be a victim in my own way. But seeing the impact that Susan's story has had opened my eyes in a big way. Even today, having this conversation with you, Anne, is a continuation of that process. It's a matter of learning and forcing the uncomfortable, being empathetic, And that's my biggest takeaway, honestly. I think from seeing 
that abusive relationship in very close detail is at its core, it is a lack of empathy on Josh's part, not showing what I would consider a human care for another person's well-being. And we need to get back to that and prioritize that in our own families, in all of our relationships, in the people that we work with, in our friends. Being okay with being uncomfortable and understanding that we don't have to always agree or get along to care for somebody else. When someone reaches out to you as part of your community and says, I'm in this really bad situation, and you have your own life, we all have our own daily stress and stuff to worry about. And that can feel like a very heavy weight when somebody brings that to you. Sometimes you just want to say, I don't have the ability to deal with this. But what the Susan Powell case taught me is how important it is to pause and recognize that we have opportunities to show empathy for one another, to help one another, and that that is a key piece in making sure that the next Susan Powell story never ends up on the news because that story becomes this woman got out, she got out safely, and she moved on with her life. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most difficult things for people is that people like my ex, not so much Josh Powell because he was so dysfunctional and he seemed so creepy, especially when his wife's been murdered and I'm guessing he can't get a lot of sympathy. But people like my ex, for example, he would say, I didn't have empathy for him. So he's going around saying like, she didn't care for me. And so there's also this dynamic that makes victims a little, I wouldn't say a little, I would say extremely nervous yes. when you say empathy, because we go, well, don't have empathy for my abuser, because what he's portraying is all faults. And anytime someone like kind of believes him and nods their head, and there's no way for an innocent bystander to know that. Right right? There's no way. There's no way that his congregation right now would know that his stories and their empathy toward him is feeding his narcissism. Mm. They wouldn't know that. So part of it, I think, is determining truth. I think truth is really important. So empathy is super important, but so is truth. Because people need to understand that in some cases, some of their actions could be enabling true harm. And it's very difficult to determine the two. I don't fault people for doing it because it's really, really hard. And studying this type of, I'll call it evil, basically, that I've done the past 10 years is a really strange study to be like, okay, how can we recognize evil when we see it, when it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing type of mm. scenario? One of the things I really encourage people to do is if you're talking with someone and they're giving a story of this terrible woman who is controlling and awful, find out from her. Just go talk to her and see what her story is. If you can, sometimes that's impossible. But being a little bit suspect I think sometimes of men who claim to have been abused or men mm. who claim to have been harmed by women. That is a really good indicator for people of maybe he is actually the abuser. If he's claiming to have been harmed by a woman or abused by a woman or that she was controlling or angry. Or Lundy Bancroft says that that's like the number one indicator that you've got an abuser on your hands. And he's one of the world's foremost abusive men experts. In fact, you would really benefit from reading. It's called, Why Does He Do That? by Lindy mm. Bancroft, if you haven't read it yet. 
Thank you for that, because I think you're 100% right. When I had to talk about empathy, primarily I'm focusing on empathy for women who are coming out of these situations, not so much for the woe is me, my poor life guy on the other side of it, because it's important to be skeptical. I, as a reporter, am skeptical of everything, but it's been a retraining to say, I'm going to start with belief when somebody discloses, hey, I'm in an abusive situation, right? The natural skeptic in me wants to immediately jump in and say, well, okay, but that's not helpful to women who are coming out of these situations. So the empathy that I'm trying to describe is the willingness to start from a position of belief. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that goes into this whole topic of like misogyny and understanding women and the Me Too movement, all of these other factors that came about after the Me Too movement happened after Susan's disappearance. And it's not political. Like, I think Me Too gets a little politicized and people start wanting to say, well, you know, but not all guys. And it's like, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's just focus on believing and showing empathy for people who are in bad situations who need help. That's all. Yeah. Your podcast was amazing. It was gripping. If you have not listened yet, it is on iTunes. It is called Cold. It is by KSL. What would we put in the search box for that? If you just search Cold, it should show up. If not, try Cold Susan Powell and it will definitely be the top hit. Great. If you have not heard it, I would highly recommend it. It is excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Dave. We appreciate you being here. Thanks, Anne. In listening to this interview again while I was editing, I recognized that I was talking a lot. And I just want to give a shout out to Dave Colley for the interview where he was so willing to listen. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for using this interview as a way to learn more and to listen to a victim's story. I genuinely felt that you cared about me personally and that you care about all victims. Thank you to Dave Colley and all men who are standing up for abuse victims. If you are in a relationship with an active pornography user or someone who you suspect is lying to you or manipulating you, there is hope. We have a daily support group, which is online, so you can attend it anywhere in the world. We have multiple sessions a day in multiple time zones. Because we understand that many women who go for help when they're in this type of psychological or emotional abuse situation, they don't get the help that they need immediately. They spend one to two to seven sessions trying to sort of explain it to a therapist who doesn't understand, or they go into clergy that doesn't quite understand. Our community gets it immediately, and therefore we can help you immediately because that's what we are here for. Similarly, when you're trying to figure out what's going on, abuse situations are happening sometimes almost on a daily basis. And so you need constant contact from someone who can help you make sense of what's happening. And that's why there are multiple sessions a day in our daily support group. So to check out our daily support group schedule, go to btr.org, click on services. You'll see the link for daily support group. We hope to see you in a session soon. And until next week, Stay safe out there.